Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I wanna welcome you to Grace. If you are new here, uh, you have joined us a few weeks into our year-long study of the book of Romans. This was a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, and sent to an early church, or multiple early churches, in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, which at that time was in really almost the height of its power. And so when Paul was inspired by the Spirit to write this letter, he knew that he was writing to an influential place filled with influential people at a very pivotal time in the life of the church, very early stage of the church. And it's a time where Christians were hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, or where people were hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, they were beginning to believe that Jesus was in fact the way and the truth and the life, that he was in fact the son of God, the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us so that through him we might be called children of God. People were hearing that, they were believing in it, they knew that he had stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live a perfect life that none of us could live, to die a death that we deserved and then rose again on the third day, proving his power and authority over these enemies that we never could defeat. People believed it. And so when Paul was writing to these early believers, Believers, he was making sure that they kept their minds focused on priority number one, holding fast to that gospel, holding fast to that good news. And so what we find in the book of Romans, in this letter, there's a few different purposes, there's a few different reasons he wrote it, but one of the major themes that we see over and over and over again is that Paul is stressing why the gospel is such good news, why the good news, literally gospel is good news, why it's the best news, this good news of Jesus Christ is the best news that we've ever heard that we could ever hope to proclaim. That's what Paul focuses on. But in order to set that up, Paul spends a lot of time talking about bad news. That's where we've been really the last few weeks. Paul spends really the first three chapters of this letter uh, explaining just this, the despairing state that humanity is in on their own strength, in their own ability, that we are all deserving of the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been revealed in all of creation that because we have understood on some level that there is a mighty God who is divine, who is holy, right? Those divine attributes that are revealed in creation, and yet we exchange that truth for lies, and we worship the creation rather than the creator. Paul says we are all deserving of this wrath, and he begins to talk about how every single person is underneath that wrath of God. That's where he goes in chapter one. That's where he spends a lot of chapter two. This morning, we're starting in chapter two, verse 17, where he's moving, not just talking about the self-righteous person that we discussed last week, but he begins talking about the Hebrew nation, the Jews in particular, who were leaning on their own strength in a lot of ways. But what Paul is doing in these first three chapters is he's stressing over and over and over again that our effort is simply not enough, that we cannot earn our way into favor from the Lord. We cannot earn our way out of the wrath of God. And this is something that we feel in our own lives in a lot of areas, right? That we are insufficient, that there are things that we want, there's things that we need that we simply can't get. We feel like maybe we, you know, we wanna believe that there is a guaranteed outcome based on my output, that I should do this and that, I should check these boxes, and therefore I get X, Y, Z, but it doesn't work like that. We might try our best, but we still don't get that grade that we want. We, don't, we didn't get the girl, we didn't get the promotion, the position, or the praise that we think we deserve based on what we have done. 
And so even though we talk about, oh, you know, it's not good to be self-entitled, we have a sense of entitlement that we all carry, that we think we should receive what we deserve based on what we do, and yet the reality is that what we do is not always enough. We see it in our life, we see it in the life of this young man right here. Happy birthday to you. Blow up, blow up here. You're terrible at this. You're gonna let your head on fire. Blow it up here. Whoa, dude. Oh my goodness. Right here, right there. Blow. What'd you? You gotta open your mouth and blow. Do it. Hold on. we do is not always enough, right? That's why the Lord has given us straws, right? And, and dads. Uh, that's why the Lord has to give us other means, because our effort's not always enough. We're insufficient. We're unable to always guarantee the things that we think we want, the things we need, the things we feel like we deserve. And what Paul is saying is that you might try to bring effort into the equation of earning your approval from the Lord. He says, but that's never going to work. He says, there's nothing you can do to make it so that you don't deserve, or to make it so that you deserve deliverance from the wrath of God. It says you don't, you won't, you can't. <laughs> you can't earn your way out of the wrath of God. It says we are all under this wrath that has been revealed against all of creation. That's what he's focusing on in chapter, the back half of two and the first half of three. That's what we're looking at this morning, where Paul is essentially looking at specifically the Jewish people, and he says, you're trying to lean on all these things to deliver you from God's wrath, and they just don't work. He says, but you deserve the wrath of God regardless of the resources that you claim to have, the reputation you claim to have built, or the reasoning that you try to use, the logic you try to use to, to get out from underneath, the loopholes you're trying to exploit to get out from underneath the wrath of God. And he says, these simply don't work. And so Paul's going to dis is going to dismantle these arguments one by one, starting in verse 17 of chapter two. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast of your relationship to God and know his will and approve the superior things because you receive instruction from the law. So he's addressing, he's clarifying his audience. He says, you might call yourself a Jew. This was a term that the people, or the non-Jewish nation, that's what the Gentiles would call them. They called them Jews. That term came from the name Judah, right, with the mo one of the most important tribes in the Jewish, in the Israelite nation, right, the, from the tribe of Judah. Judah is literally, it, what it means in Hebrew is praise, to praise or to give thanks. So he says, you might call yourself a Jew, one from Judah, one who praises the Lord, and you might boast of your relationship with God that you know his will, that you approve of the right things because you've received his law. It says, and if you are convinced that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an educator of the senseless, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the essential features of knowledge and of truth. Paul's not making up 
accolades right here. He is quoting from the declarations of the Jewish nation. These are things that they claimed. These are things that they proclaimed about themselves. It says, you say that you are in this special issue with God. You say that you've received the law, that you know all the right things, that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an educator of the senseless, a teacher of little children, because you've been given the law. He says, therefore, you who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? That's where the record scratch goes. (laughs) Paul is listing all these accomplishments that the Jewish people claimed, and then he asks them, he says, so did you teach yourselves this thing, all this stuff? Because you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who tell others not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul says, I know your claims, but what's your conduct? How are you behaving based on these beliefs that you're sharing with the world around you? Jesus himself, when he taught about these wrong, you know, these, these disobeying this, the stealing, or when he talks about adultery, he, he re- repeatedly, with all these commandments, he says, even if you haven't physically stolen something, he says, if you have envy in your mind, it's the same as stealing. Even though you might have not committed adultery physically, he says, if you have lust in your mind, that's the same exact thing, right? Your heart is in the wrong place. Paul says, you guys are guilty of all these things you're saying that are wrong. He uses this last one, of, of being against idols but robbing temples. It's a little strange. There's a little discussion around what exactly was this. In Acts 19, there seems to be an allusion to the fact that Jews would go into pagan temples. They would steal precious metals. They felt justified because like, these are false gods. So they would take the metals and they would melt them down into new jewelry. And Paul's saying, look, even if you're claiming that those idols are wrong, you're revealing your own idolatry for wealth by committing this act of stealing even if you think it's for a good cause, it's not. Paul says, you have all these claims. You feel so good, so high and mighty. He says, you are boasting in the law, and yet you dishonor God by transgressing the law. For just as it is written, the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He quotes from Isaiah 52, where Isaiah is condemning the nation of Israel just as Paul is condemning the Jewish audience here. And he's saying that because you are claiming to be from the, for the Lord and from the Lord in fellowship with the Lord, he says because of that claim, your lack of obedience is just, it's blaspheming his name. You're dishonoring God because you're saying one thing and yet you're doing another. Because you claim you have all this great knowledge. And as we know from G.I. Joe himself, Knowing is half of the battle, but what, but what Paul is saying is that the other half is perfect obedience. Even though you know the right things, even though you've been given this resource in the Mosaic Law, this list of do's and don'ts, this way to be set apart, right? The reason God gave his people the law is that he says, this is how you can be set apart from the pagan nations around you, and this is also instruction for how to live a life that's glorifying to me. These are the proper boundaries for life in this world. Paul says, you say you know these things, and yet your life reveals a complete lack of obedience. 
you're hypocrites, right? Hypocrisy is something that we see in our lives or in others' lives, and I mean, we are quick to call it out. Even, even just in the secular culture, people do not like hypocrisy. We, we call people out fast because there's something in us that knows that hypocrisy is just, oh, it's just the worst. It's the worst transgression. People get roasted for hypocrisy in their lives, for saying one thing and yet doing another. In the early 2010s, there was a California state senator by the name of Leland Yee. And Leland Yee was served in the California state senate for eight years. And he was known for two big things, right? He had two big platforms that he would talk on. He would talk on how uh, guns just across the board were bad, that no one should have guns, um, that it's, you know, a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing, no one should own them. It's a danger, all this kind of stuff. His other big platform was uh, he was against violent video games because he said that these games would make people or, you know, makes kids violent themselves. It's negative for their mind, for their hearts. You know, it leads them in the wrong direction. He was known, like he made headlines because he was so, he was just pounding tables about these two core issues. And so Leland was so successful in the Senate that he decided then to run for mayor of San Francisco in 2011. And when he ran, he lost, unfortunately. He, run, he lost, he was fifth place, unfortunate for him. Um, and he was then deep in debt. He was down like at least $70,000 in debt from running this campaign, losing, and he said, well, how am I gonna make this back? And he decided, all right, rather than go out and get a job, I'm just gonna kind of get the side hustle going. And in 2014, he got arrested alongside of a guy named, I'm not kidding, Shrimp Boy. <laughs> they were arrested in 2014 for smuggling guns for smuggling guns. And the whole thing, the whole issue was that they had this, these gun, this, this weaponry that they were trying to broker a $2 million deal between one group of rebels and another. Like so kind of enemy, like rebels from one nation and, they, and rebels from another. And this group of, this amount of weaponry consisted of a bunch of machine guns and rocket launchers. So they were trying to make this sale, trying to broker this $2 million sale. It turned out that the, the receiving terrorists were actually just FBI guys in disguise. And so, boom, they got busted. But the guy who was known for being anti-violence, anti-gun, was in fact caught trying to sell rocket launchers to terrorists. And that's something that we see. We're like, wow, well, you know, he kind of missed the point. And, and in the same way, though, our lives reflect this. We all have these blind spots. We all have these issues in our lives. And so, here's the thing. When we have hypocrisy in our life, it shouldn't come as a surprise. It shouldn't be something that derails us, but instead it should be something that we acknowledge is always a threat. It's something that's always crouching at our doorstep, threatening to overtake us. This is what Paul even recognized in his own life. He says in Romans 7 that I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For I wanna do the good, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but I do the very evil that I do not want. He says this is a, a struggle that even I, Paul, have in my life. That there's this conflict within me. There is this, there's this danger, there's this temptation to fall into what I know is wrong. It says, and yet there's something in my sinful flesh that just can't give it up. And so I will say one thing and yet I'll do another. I will do the very evil that I don't want to do. 
And so for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should then be a people who are praying to God for conviction, that we are a people that are asking the Lord to give us eyes to see the error of our own ways. We need the Holy Spirit to perform this work in us, to humble us in that way. And then we need to build accountability in our lives. God says, I'm I'm not gonna promise, if you trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, it's not that God promises us in this world, in this life, that we will live a perfect life. He doesn't promise that. But what he promises is he says that when you are tempted to sin, I will always give you a way out. That there's always an escape. And so the impetus comes on us to make sure that we are guarding ourselves, that we are creating structure and accountability in our lives so that when temptation comes, we can flee. We can avoid and we can run away from that sin, from that temptation. God says, this is what I desire for you. And that, well, are we still gonna fail? Yes. Can we perfectly obey? No. But the Lord says, I have made a way for you to still escape. And so by my power, by the leading of my spirit, you can have life. And you can find fulfillment and satisfaction even, in, even, dis, even despite the stumbles and the mistakes that you might make. Because God is just and faithful to forgive, Right? So we pray, we ask the Lord for conviction, we practice accountability, recognizing that ultimately knowing enough is never enough. In the same way, Paul's gonna go on, he's gonna say that the reputation that you've built, the rituals that you follow are also not enough to deliver you from the wrath of God. He says this in verse 25. He says that circumcision has its value if you practice the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcised man obeys the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised man who keeps the law judge you, who despite the written code and circumcision transgressed the law? Okay, what was that? All right, so Paul is alluding to, he's talking about a ritual in the Jewish community of circumcision. And this was something that was handed to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, handed to Abraham by the Lord. He says, this is a way for you to physically mark yourself and your descendants, your male offspring. You mark yourselves physically as a sign that you belong to me. This is something that sets you apart from the nations around you. Okay, that's what circumcision was meant to be, and that's what it was. For years and years and years, for generations and generations and generations. But something happened in the Jewish nation between Malachi and John the Baptist. This is what we call a few hundred years of silence because God didn't reveal new things about himself through prophets during that time. He said through Malachi, he says, I'm not gonna speak to you again until one comes in the spirit of Elijah, that being John the Baptist. And so, Paul, or so the Lord said, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna speak to you, but he, he didn't stop working. He didn't stop moving, right? He was protecting his people, he was gathering them, he was really setting the stage for the ministry of Jesus Christ. But in those years, Israel was facing, the Jews were facing incredible persecution, just ultra persecuted. And so in that time where they're being just, oh, they're just under the pressure and the press of enemy nations, they're they're at threat of being just scattered, really kind of dissolved even as a people group. In that time, they realized, man, we've gotta stick together, we've gotta huddle up, and We've got to rely, we've got to lean back on our traditions. They became really serious about all these different traditions and rituals that God had given them because they didn't have necessarily all the like 
fancy temples and places of worship that they used to. So they said, we're just gonna have to rely on our personal devotion, these personal rites and rituals that we've been given by the Lord. One of those was circumcision. And so what happened was that during those years of silence, they decided that circumcision, somehow it got twisted and the tradition changed where it's no longer just a mark that you belong to the Lord, right, this kind of, this sort of outward demonstration of an inward allegiance. Instead, they decided that circumcision was in fact, in a way, salvific. Literally, they would say, one of their phrases would be that none who are circumcised shall ever descend to Gehenna, would essentially, if you're circumcised, you'll never go to hell. That's one of the things that they started to preach and proclaim amongst, you know, in their, in their groups, amongst each other. And so Paul knows that this is one of the things that they're claiming. And so what he says just now, in 225 through 27, is he says, no, no. It's not like that. That's not how that works. Because I know that you think that just going through this ritual somehow saves you, he says, but that's not the case. God cares about the state of your heart. He cares about your obedience. He cares about your faithfulness. He says, and this is true because even if there is someone around you who's not circumcised, he says that physically uncircumcised man who actually obeys the Lord, who actually keeps the law, he's in a position to judge you. You're getting shown up by the have-nots around you because that's what God cares about. He cares about the heart. He cares about your faithfulness. He doesn't care about just the outward ritual. He says, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh. But someone is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, not by the letter of the law. And this person's praise is not from people, but from God. Paul is making this very clear distinction. He says you can't lean on this reputation of being a Jew. You can't lean on this ritual of performing circumcision to somehow deliver you from God's wrath. He says that's not the same as righteousness. It's not the same as heart transformation. He says you can have all the right trappings. You can put on all the right clothes and wear the right badge. Put the right little bumper sticker on your camel. He says that's, you can do all that. He says but that's not gonna be what saves you. That's not what God cares about. He says God cares about your heart. He says that's why there is one who can follow the Lord and experience the circumcision, the setting apart of the heart, not by your work, but by the work of the Spirit, of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit alone. So that's what God cares about. And this person's praise is not from people, it's from the Lord. In other words, Paul's using this turn of phrase, talking about the Jews, right? Remember, he's just now naming them in the letter of Romans. He's saying, you Jews, these people, you know, based on the word Judah, meaning one who praises, he says, you people who should be praising the Lord, says it's not about just these outward rites and rituals. It's not about going through the motions. He says, and the one who truly praises God is the one who really obeys God. And what's so amazing is that the one who obeys the Lord isn't just praising him, but is in fact praised by him. He says, you are working for the audience. You're working for the blessing and the praise and the affirmation of the Lord, not your neighbor. So Paul is essentially dismantling this claim that somehow being a Jew makes you better than everybody else. He says, it's just not true. Now, he doesn't wanna overstate it. That's why he starts chapter three with kind of this little pushback, this hypothetical pushback. He says, therefore, someone might ask, what advantage does the Jew have? What is even the value of circumcision? Right, he's imagining the pushback, which is, whoa, so they're not 
like special, like God didn't really care about the nation of Israel. And Paul says, no, no, no. There's still many advantages. He says, first of all, and literally, this isn't like you're going down a list. This is maybe better translated as most of all, right? Or first things first. As the most importantly, this is the advantage given to the Jews by God is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. God spoke to them. God revealed himself to them. That was incredibly advantageous. That was an incredibly special gift that God gave them. He says, I'm not trying to just like discount all of the history of the Israelite nation. He says, they had advantages, but it's not enough to just lean on that reputation. It's not enough to just lean on that ritual because those things will never replace the righteousness of God that he said in chapter one is revealed from faith to faith, the righteousness of God that he gives to us through our faith in the one who is faithful, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And we get this, right? We, we understand this on an intellectual basis, but it's still hard for us even today, even as mostly Gentiles here, is hard for us to still think that, oh, yeah, like going through these motions, performing these rites and rituals, having a certain reputation, there's still a part of us that wants to think that somehow that does give us a leg up. There really is a part of us that thinks that, that maybe if I just go, I, you know, do these certain things, it's gonna lead to the right outcome. I'm gonna deserve, I'm gonna earn this favor, this blessing, what have you. I, I know this is true for us in our relationship with the Lord or with one another, I see it most often, really most evidently, in the way that we dress our babies. I've got three little kids. I dressed them when they were babies. I mean, I didn't pick out their stuff. Their, my, their mom did, um, my wife. But uh, we put them in clothes, and a lot of it was really aspirational. Even today, like, my four-year-old's got this shirt that says, future draft pick. And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know? maybe uh, if they're drafting the wild kid team or something, I don't know. But we dress our babies like this all the time. You can go to a store in College Station today and you can buy this onesie, the class of 2046. And if that doesn't make you feel a thousand years old, then something's wrong with you. You can buy this. This is in stock. I checked. It's in stock. We put babies in this. And you know, maybe, right? But the reality is that that outward ritual, that like little, that process of like, oh yeah, oh, he's gonna be an Aggie. Oh, he loves to sit with dad and watch the game. Blah, blah, blah. You know, like that, okay. But there's no guarantee. That's not actually gonna necessarily change the outcome or the trajectory of that child's life. Maybe, but it's, it's not guaranteed, right? But there's a part of us that thinks, oh, I wanna put my kid in that future shoeaholic onesie. Why do you want that? I don't know. Sin has broken our world in so many ways. But you think, oh, this is great. This is gonna make my kid, they will in fact one day be a welder. They will, because I've spoken it over them on their onesie. And you're like, O-R? Yeah, I looked it up. A welder is one who welds with a welder who performs well, well, one who welders. It's a thing, O-R is okay, don't worry. It's not like the British spelling. Uh, or maybe we say, my kid is going to be a future guilter? Quilter. There's a needle and thread. Um, but I'm going to, either way, it's a little strange, right? Like, I want my kid to be obsessed with textiles, with creating blankets for warmth. Or maybe I say, you know what? I'm not going to try to speak over my kid this future, uh, you know, profession or obsession with shoes. Instead, I will just proclaim this ominous statement. 
that I, Filbert the baby, am the future, right? And you might be thinking to yourself, wow, that looks like something I would buy from the AT&T store merch site. <laughs> You're correct. That's where you can buy this. So <laughs> go buy a phone and a really creepy onesie. There's a part of us that thinks that if I just say the right thing, if I do the right thing, if I go through these certain motions, that that's somehow gonna dramatically alter or determine the trajectory of my life. And yes, we make decisions that matter, but the reality is that we, we can't just lean on going through motions to just magically arrive at whatever destination we want. It's true of our lives, it's true of our careers, it's true of our relationships, it's also true of our relationship with God. God says, I don't, I'm not focused on these rites and rituals. I've given you these things to do, but they're, they're meant to be reminders that you are dependent on me. This is what he told to the nation of Israel through the prophet Hosea. He says that I delight in faithfulness, not simply sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply in whole burnt offerings. He says, I care about your heart, not just the work of your hands. Now, does, did God give them sacrifices? Did he give them processes and festivals and things to celebrate? And yes, absolutely. But all of those things were designed to point their hearts and their minds back to the Lord himself. He says, that's what I want. I don't just want the work of your hands. I want the affections of your heart. That's what I desire. That's what I care about. We can't just rely on doing checking these boxes of keeping up appearances. Paul says that does not deliver you from the wrath of God. So if we are trusting in Jesus Christ as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be a people who are praying, I would say first and foremost for humility. Right, as we're asking the Lord to convict us of our sin, we then pray and say, God, I need you to keep me humble. I wanna make sure that I'm continually depending on you. I need to be humble before my God and before my neighbor recognizing that I am saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is, I, I've not done something, I haven't checked enough boxes to be better than someone else. I, I have no, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Paul says, you need to not rely on this reputation of these rituals, they're not enough. And so one of the things even that Jesus pointed his followers towards in order to stay humble is he says, you know what, when you give, when you sacrifice, when you serve, he says maybe you should do so in secret. Literally, he says, you, you could serve in such a way that, that the right hand doesn't even know what the left hand is doing. And I think that's a helpful practice for us to maybe even consciously, even this week, commit ourselves, intentionally decide, hey, I am going to intentionally, purposefully give or serve or sacrifice in a way that, that I know no one will see. Why? Because I'm not doing this for the praise of people. I'm doing this for the blessing and the honor and the glory and the praise of my God. Paul says that is the object of our work. That's the goal. It's the praise of the Lord, the affirmation of the Lord, not of people. So we recognize, man, we, we can't rely on these resources we've been given, this reputation that we've built. We also can't rely on the reasoning we might try to use to get out from under, to circumvent the wrath of God. Paul is about to move in verse three. He starts kind of bringing up and then breaking down uh, multiple arguments against what he's just claimed 
about uh, needing the gospel, about why the gospel is the only way, right? So he's gonna kind of launch them up. He's gonna use kind of, he's gonna put himself in the position of the arguer. He's gonna say, okay, some might say this, 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 but then he's gonna take them down, right? This is what he does. He says, what then, verse three, if some were unfaithful, their unfaithfulness will not nullify God's faithfulness, will it? Absolutely not. Let God be proven true and every human being shown up as a liar for just as it is written so that you will be justified in your words and will prevail when you are judged. He says, some might argue, well, hey, I, uh, or God made these promises to Israel and if they've failed, if the people have failed, that means God failed them, right? That means that God isn't actually true. He's not following through on his promise. Paul says, absolutely not. Though every person be a liar, God will be proven true. For God has the right and the responsibility to judge all of the world. And he is fully justified in his words. He is fully justified. He, he, he can pass any cross-examination. It says God it will always be faithful and his promises will still be fulfilled regardless of our failure. So that's simply not, God's faithfulness is not dependent upon the, the absence of our failure. It says it's a faulty argument. But if our unrighteousness, verse five, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates, if it demonstrates the unrighteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Right, so Paul's saying, well, okay, maybe another argument is that, well, our unrighteousness is essentially a proof for God's righteousness, right? You can't really understand the light without the dark, so therefore, if God is wrathful against us, is that wrong, right? That's, that's not wrong, is it, for him to come down on sin because that sin highlights his own goodness or rightness. And I love this because Paul is, this is such an inflammatory statement that Paul then gives this parenthetical note, right? Anytime you see parentheses in scripture, it's, referring, it's an authorial note. So he like put a little like a arrow or an asterisk and wrote it off to the side. He says, okay, I'm just speaking in human terms. He says, don't, don't think I'm actually arguing this. Says, some people might say, well, well God's, it's wrong for him to judge us because our wrong shows how right he is. He says, does that make God wrong to judge? He says, absolutely not. <laughs> Otherwise, how could God judge the world? Again, basically with the same argument he just made. He says, God has the right and the responsibility to judge all of creation. He's the creator. He is ultimately right. He doesn't need wrong to prove that he's right. And so when he proves that, when he judges rightly, he says that is in no way a sign or an indication that God is wrong, that he is unjust or unrighteous in that judgment. And he comes to his final one. He says, for if by my lie, again, this is, a, you know, other, this is an argument against, for if by my lie, the truth of God enhances his glory, why am I still actually being judged as a sinner? Right? So it's kind of building on the argument he just made. Well, gosh, it seems like the more that I lie, the more God has proven true, the more his glory is enhanced. So why am I being judged by that? Why not say, let us do evil so that good may come of it? Paul says, this is what some who slander us allege that we say, right? Let's sin all the more so that grace may abound. He says, no, and their condemnation is deserved. In other words, Paul is essentially taking all these things, all these arguments, all these reasonings, and he's saying that you can't outlogic the Lord of the universe. You can't try to weasel your way out from underneath 
the wrath of God. He says there's no defense for your disobedience. We might try to justify it. We might try to reason it away. We might try to explain it. But he says there is no defense. It simply doesn't work. Those arguments don't hold water. When I was in kindergarten, I, I recognized that, wow, the time of being in kindergarten is, is just, it's a season of life that's full of danger and intrigue. And I understood that a lot of that danger didn't just come from falling down on the playground or disobeying the teacher, but it came from girls. And I knew that. I don't know who taught it to me, probably another kindergartner, but I knew it was true. And so because of that, I knew that as a kindergarten boy, I needed an arch enemy in my class, and that was a girl named Amanda. We became arch enemies. She probably did not know that, but I knew it deep in my heart that we're arch enemies. And part of having an arch enemy means that you are seeking every opportunity to sabotage this person. So one day when we were on the playground, I saw that Amanda was about to go down a slide a twisty slide. It takes a while to get to the bottom. And I thought to myself, you know what? What if at the bottom of this slide she doesn't just get off and enjoy her life? What if I take these pebbles from the ground? Pebbles is generous. These loose rock shards from the ground and I place them on the bottom of the slide so when she slides down she will scratch her bottom and it will hurt. So I did that. And rather than putting the rocks up there and fleeing, uh, like an intelligent villain, I just stood there and waited <laughs> to see her reaction. And so Amanda goes down the twisty slide, comes down, hits all the rocks. Sure enough, it scratches her up. She's in pain. She goes, oh! And she sees me standing there like a dummy. And she says, hey, she says, I I'm, gonna, I'm telling the teacher, right? That was the right thing to do. She was gonna go tell the teacher because that is right. She is right. Amanda is the hero of this story, right? Don't, just because I'm telling it doesn't mean that I was the good guy. Like, she is the hero. She says, justice will prevail. I will seek the proper authorities to bring the correct resolution to this crime. But I had grown up, I grew up with two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister, no brothers. So even though I wasn't very good at wrestling, I knew psychological warfare. <laughs> And I understood that deeper wounds could be inflicted with words than a Batman, you know, action figure ever could. And so when Amanda told me that she was gonna go tell the teacher, I said, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, uh, yeah. Well, you could, but here's the thing, Amanda. When you slid down that slide, when you hit those rocks, you cried out in pain. And you cried out so loud that you hurt my ears. So maybe I should just go tell the teacher on you. And so then we agreed that neither of us would tell the teacher anything. <laughs> Again, I was not the hero. I won, but I was not the hero. There was no defense for that transgression, for that crime. That was a wrong thing to do. And I can try to justify it. I can try to reason my way out of it. I you know, was able to convince the victim of said crime Hopefully she eventually grew past those weird, you know, in non-connections in her mind. But, but the reality was that even though I argued my way out of it, I, that would never would have stood, stood, that would never would have held water in the court of law, right? Judge still would have found me guilty. God says, Paul is saying that God has found us guilty, that we have rejected the truth, we've accepted the lie, and there's no defense for the disobedience that follows. That's why Paul then spends the next 11 verses just hammering this point home. 
saying that, okay, so do we think we're better off? Are any of us that aren't Jews better off? Nope. For we've already charged that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. For just as it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and together they become worthless. There's no one who shows kindness, not even one. He says, your throats are open graves, and they deceive with their tongues, and the poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul says that now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced. He says, your arguments don't work. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. And he says, no one, no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says, it doesn't work. You need mercy. You can never do enough. You can never say enough. You can never be enough. Your effort is never enough to deliver you from the wrath of God. Therefore, what we need, God himself must provide. And that is the good news of our gospel. That's where Paul's about to go in chapter three that we'll get to next week, but I'll give us a little spoiler because what Paul says is just as the wrath of God, just as we stand condemned under the law, he says in Christ we have deliverance. In Christ we find mercy. Because Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die of the death that we deserve, to be raised on the third day, to prove his power, to authenticate his statement that he's the way and the truth and the life, that anyone who calls on him is free from condemnation, is free from shame, is free from the penalty of sin. Paul says that that is the mercy that we find in Christ. Under the law, nothing but condemnation. Under Christ, everything we could ever ask for, everything we could ever hope for, and yet nothing we deserve. It's the mercy of God demonstrated through Christ. What God required, God provided. Therefore, we pray, we thank the Lord for his mercy. For those of us who have not put our faith in Christ, that is my hope and my prayer for you, is that you would be drawn by the Spirit of God to believe in the work of God through Jesus Christ. And my hope and my prayer for those of us who believe is that we would walk through this life grateful, thankful, reflecting this incredible demonstration that God has done for us, reflecting this incredible gift that we've been given through Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, we're singing a song about how Christ is enough. That should be at the forefront of our minds. That should be the beat of our hearts, that Christ is enough. It's not the resources we try to gather. It's not the, the, the reputation we built, the rituals we go through. It's not the reasoning, the arguments we try to make to somehow earn our place in, the, in God's favor, but instead the Lord says, I will give you righteousness, not based on your work, but based on the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because none of us seek God. None of us stand before the law uncondemned.
So praise the Lord that he has given us this gift by grace, through faith, in Christ. So as we prepare to sing, if you would, let's pray. God, we thank you that you've shown us in your word the marvelous, amazing grace that you have provided through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that we can come before you not as people who are just fearfully trying to do the right thing, to balance out the scales, but instead, God, we can come to you fully confident that you have provided what you require, that Jesus Christ lived the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved, to make a way for us to know you and belong to you for all of eternity. God, we pray for the young woman who had some health pop-ups, God, just 20 minutes ago. Lord, we pray that you would be with her, you'd be near to her, that God, that you would heal her, that God, that she would have a quick resolution to whatever it was that was going on. Lord, we trust that just as you care for us spiritually, Lord, you care about us physically. So Lord, even though you haven't promised to heal every injury until we get to the new heaven and the new earth, Lord, we pray for your healing today for her. God, that you would be glorified through whatever resolution it is that she arrives at. That you hear our prayers, that God, you answer them. And Lord, we just ask that as we sing your praise, as we declare the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that God, it would be honoring to your name, it would be glorifying to you. Lord, we ask these things according to your will. Amen.